right. Well, good morning. Morning. It's good to see you all here. Uh, my name is Jonathan. For those of you who might not know me, I am the Promontory Campus Pastor, and so it's been it's been some time since I've been able to actually be out here in in Agassiz, but I am delighted to actually be here and be able to see all of you. Uh, as Pastor Eldon said, it is such a joy to actually be in church with people, to be able to, to preach the Word and actually see your faces. Uh, that is a great joy, uh, and I don't, I don't take it lightly and nor for granted anymore. It's one of the things I've just been learning, uh, just how good the blessings of God have been to us for so many years I think sometimes I've just taken them for granted. It's been a good reminder that God is good in so many ways. Well, we're going to open up to Acts chapter 1, so if you have your Bibles, you can find your way there. But as you do, let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever stayed up late at night, stressed out about a decision that you have to make, right? Has that happened to anyone else? You're staying up all night and you're just thinking, oh, I've got to make this decision, or maybe you've already made it, and you're still thinking about it. You're still wondering and worrying about, did I make the right decision, right? Did, did, I, did, I, did I end up doing the right thing or not? And it can be about all kinds of things, right? It can be about something even just tiny, right? I went to the store and I bought this blue shirt. Oh, no, that was a terrible mistake. It looks so much better in the store. Why did I buy the blue one? Oh, no, right? Or, or you think about, uh, you know what? I shouldn't have said that, should I? I was talking to my coworker at work, and, oh, I said something that was really awkward. Why did I say it that way? Why did I tell that story? I should have said something else. Why did I do that? You know, should I bring it up tomorrow, or should I just try and let it go, right? And we can keep ourselves up all night over all of these kinds of things. We face a thousand decisions every single day, right? Even think about just going into a grocery store, how many hundreds of decisions you have to make just going in there. If you're going to go in and you're going to buy eggs, Okay, are you getting regular, local, organic, free-range, brown, white, medium, large, extra-large? There's so many decisions just in that one little thing, right? And it's easy when we have to make some of these small decisions, but it gets even harder when they're bigger, right? We have to make these big decisions. What should I do with my life? What career should I pursue? What school should I go to? Should I go back to school or should I keep working? Do I get married is this the right person to marry? Do we have kids? Where do we send our kids to school? Do we send them back to school, especially in a year like this one? What does that look like? And it's hard not to wonder at some point or another, you know, am I making a mistake? Did I choose the right thing? And it's easy to almost get paralyzed by that kind of fear that takes over that maybe I made the wrong decision. And yet in all of this, the Bible says, do not be anxious. Do not be anxious about really anything. And we think, but there are so many decisions I have to make. There are so many things that could go wrong. How am I not supposed to be anxious? And so this morning, what we're going to talk about here is just what does biblical decision-making look like? How can we avoid keeping ourselves up all night with anxiety and stress and everything else? Well, as we've already uh, read our passage this morning, or had it read for us, you'll know that this uh, is coming and the disciples are having to make a pretty major decision about their life, right? They're having to make this decision, who is going to replace Judas? So if you've been following along with us in this series, uh, you'll know that uh, at this point in Acts, we've seen that Jesus died, He rose again, 
In fact, he ascended to heaven, right? He returned back to heaven, and he told his disciples, now wait, right? Wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. They were to just hang out in Jerusalem, essentially, and wait until the Holy Spirit would come. And you can imagine as they're doing this, as they're gathering together, they're going to start talking about everything that's taken place, and eventually, one of the things they're going to start talking about is Judas. What did Judas just do? right? What was that massive decision Judas just made, and why did he make it? Now what do we do? Do we have to replace him, and how do we do that? And so they begin to make these decisions. So I'd like us to take a look, not just at what decision they make, but also how they make it. We're going to kind of look at the negative and the positive. We're going to look at the decision Judas made, but also the decision that the disciples, Peter in particular, has to make in terms of a replacement. We're going to see that really there's two big factors that weigh in here. The first is, is what we're going to see, the, the, the sovereignty of God. That is, God is in control of all things, and we're also going to see actually that we are responsible for our own actions as well. So we're going to look at both of these cases, and really what I want us to see is that biblical decision-making is trusting the Word of God, acting in obedience, and relying on Him for the outcome. So let's just start. Look back at the beginning of our passage. If you have your Bibles with me, it's verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 15. It says this, In those days Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. So let's just set the scene a little bit here, right? The uh, disciples are all meeting in one room. There's 120 of them all together. And as they're talking, they're discussing, you know, what Judas just did. Why did he betray them, right? What had gone on? Did Jesus make a mistake calling him in the first place? Was this just an unforeseen accident? Why did he decide to do this? Remember, they've been traveling with Judas for the past three years, hanging out with Jesus, listening to him, learning from him, and they really hadn't suspected that Judas was going to do anything. In fact, if you remember this story in John chapter 13, Jesus gets really, really obvious, and he says, one of you is going to betray me. And they're all wondering, is it me? Is it you? Who who is it? And Jesus says, it's the person that I give this bread to. So he dips the bread, gives it to Judas, and Judas takes up and leaves. And if you notice, the text there will actually say, and they still didn't suspect him. They still didn't realize what Judas was about to do. And so this came as a blindside to them. Suddenly, Judas had betrayed them, handed Jesus over to the soldiers, and he was put to death. And so now they're they're kind of reeling from this and thinking, why did this happen? And so Peter begins to speak, and he begins at the point where I think we also need to begin. He starts by asking, well, what does the Bible actually say? What is the Word of God to this situation? Now, it's very specific for them, but he starts by recognizing actually Scripture is fulfilled. If you jump down to verse 20, he says, for it's written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and there be no one to dwell in it. Right, this first quotation here is from Psalm 69, 24. It's this psalm about being betrayed. In fact, Jesus had, had quoted this same psalm about himself earlier in his ministry. 
And so Peter begins to kind of put dots together and realize, oh, Jesus was telling us that he himself was going to be betrayed. And you notice here how, how Peter describes the Bible. L- look at verse 16. He, he uses a very uh, specific turn of phrase. He says, Scripture had to be fulfilled, which, one second, <laughs> which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David. So, so what does that mean then for our Bibles? It means that actually the, the Bibles, what we are reading here, is the words of the Holy Spirit spoken by human authors, right? We can say that this is actually God's own Word. Yes, it was written by human beings like King David and others, but it's the Holy Spirit who is speaking through them. Right, later on, Peter will write in the book of Second Peter, he says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Bible was written across centuries with many different authors, and yet there is one author. It is God Himself. This is what God has written about Himself. In fact, Jesus will go on to talk in Luke 24. He says, all of Scripture was actually pointing towards me. The Bible is a book written by God about God. And so here is what Peter has come to realize. Why did Judas betray them? Why did Judas turn his back? Was it an accident? Actually, the answer is no. It was because God had ordained that it would happen that way. That's quite the statement, isn't it? But that is what we find here, that God was actually in control of everything and even including Judas betraying Jesus. God used the death of Jesus to bring the greatest good the world has ever known. So why then did Judas betray Jesus? So Scripture would be fulfilled. Or to put it another way is to say, God is in control. He is sovereign. Why did Jesus go to the cross? Because that was the plan of God for salvation. He would die in our place for our sins, and we can be forgiven. This was God's plan. In fact, if you jump just a little bit further into the book of Acts, chapter 4, 27, the church there prays. It says, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. It wasn't an accident. It was the plan of God. So what does that actually mean then for us? Well, it means, first of all, that our world is... Uh, or sorry, first it means we can have confidence that God is in control. We don't live in a world that is dominated by chaos as much as 2020 seems to be dominated by chaos and randomness and all kinds of other awful things. Actually, what the Bible tells us is that this is still part of God's plan and He is still in control. He is sovereign over all things. Secondly, it means that the promises the Bible gives are trustworthy. This is God's own word. This is what He Himself has spoken for us. And He wrote it, and He is the one who is in control. So we can actually read this book with confidence, knowing that when it says there is forgiveness in Jesus, there is. 
When it says there is hope in eternal life, there is. When he says he will not leave us nor forsake us, we can count on those promises. We can hold on to them tightly because we know that the God who spoke them is the one who has control over all things. But now if we're going to ask the question, why did Judas betray Jesus? We're given this answer, it was part of God's plan. But I guess we should also flip that question around a little bit and say, well, okay, so did Judas have a choice? Is he held responsible for what he did? Right? If God is in control of everything, does that mean Judas is kind of off the hook? And here's where we see the, the second giant factor that we have to consider, that is our responsibility. Look back with me at our text, verse 18. Talking about Judas, it says, Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. Falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out, and it became known to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. <laughs> Luke kind of interrupts Peter as he is writing this account. He gives us, you can see in our Bibles, it's in, even in brackets, right? It's this little parenthesis off to the side, right? He wants to tell us what actually happened to Judas. What's the end of that story? And really, Luke focuses us here and says he was judged for his sin. Right? Matthew 27, you might know, uh, gives more information in terms of what Judas actually did afterwards. Judas actually tried to return the money. Right? He brought it back to the temple, threw it in, and the Pharisees said, we don't want it. That's blood money. You take it. And Judas actually left, and, and he hung himself, right? Most likely, the Pharisees then purchased, that, uh, purchased the field where he did that in his own name, and it ended up becoming a graveyard. So, but Luke doesn't focus on all these other details. He's really just focused on one thing, the fact that uh, Judas was judged for what he did. He was held accountable. He was responsible for his actions. And that really shouldn't surprise us if we've read the Bible a couple times. The Bible is full of commands that God expects us to follow, calls us to obey Him. We are responsible to follow Him, and Jesus is probably the one who warns us about this the most, that one day we will give an account for all the things that we have done before God. Matthew chapter 12, Jesus says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. Even for those little things that kind of slip out of our mouth, we will one day give an account for all of those things. Yes, we are responsible for our actions. Judas was, in fact, judged for his sin. He was held accountable. But doesn't that seem like a little bit of a paradox at this point, right? Say God is absolutely sovereign, and yet we are responsible for our actions. How can both of those things be true? Now, I know we're stepping into a bit of a, a, a theological <laughs> crater, if you will, but stay with me here. For, I'll promise we'll get back to something more, a little bit concrete here in a second. But the Bible affirms God is sovereign over all things, and yet at the same time, He gives us the freedom to follow the desires of our hearts. Why did Judas... Uh, choose to betray Jesus, because in his heart he despised Jesus. He wanted the money. He was greedy for himself. And God in his sovereignty allowed Judas to continue down that path. So Judas made a choice following the inclination of a sinful heart and turned his back on Jesus, and he's held accountable for it. So here's what we need to understand. 
means we are also going to be held accountable for those same evil inclinations of our hearts. We're held accountable for our actions, and one day we will stand before God's judgment. But the good news is that's not the end of the story, is it? That's not the end of the story. In fact, the good news is that God sent Jesus to die on the cross for guilty, sinful hearts like mine and yours so that we would be forgiven. And He, in fact, changes our hearts so we can respond to Him in faith. Romans chapter 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. God in His mercy has stopped us, turned us around, called Him to Himself, changed our hearts, and called us to respond in trust and faith, to confess our sins and trust in His sacrifice for us. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You know what the tragedy is of the story of Judas? More than the fact that he just betrayed Jesus. It's the fact that he never repented. Think about it. Both Peter and Judas turned away from Jesus in that, uh, uh, before the cross. And yet, their responses after their sin were completely different, weren't they? Peter turned and confessed his sin, returned to Jesus. Judas tried to run away. And see, here's the truth. We, have, we are faced with that exact same decision. In fact, the very most important thing we will ever decide in our entire lives is what to do with Jesus Christ. All of us have sinned. All of us have actions to which we will be held accountable for. The question is, will you turn and confess your sins, repent and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? So if you feel that tug on your heart, that, that desire that God is calling you to turn and trust Him, don't turn away from it. Confess your sins and trust in Him. Right? Let us learn from that example of Judas and not run away. Now, I said at the beginning, Judas is very much the negative example of all of this, right? And he is. Okay, so what about the positive? What's the other side of all this? How are we to understand these two grand themes of the sovereignty of God and and our responsibility before Him? How does that work out then in a positive manner? Well, let's look back at the rest of our passage, right? The disciples are having to still make this decision. How do they replace uh, Judas And so I think if we understand these two truths rightly, we actually can have confidence for the future. Look back at our passage. At the very end of verse 20, Peter here is quoting from, I think it's Psalm uh, 109. He says, let another take his office. Peter has been arguing that they actually need to replace Judas. What's really interesting here is actually when the, uh, the next disciple to leave, to die, is James. They actually don't replace him. Why? Because he was actually faithful until the end. They replaced Judas because he was the one who uh, betrayed them and abandoned them. So in verse 21, Peter goes on to say, he says, so one of the men who have accompanied us uh, during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. 
So what's going on, right? Peter is saying, okay, look, this is what the Bible has called us to do. We need to replace this office that Judas held, and we're going to, in fact, replace it with someone who was a witness to all these things. So if they're going to be a witness to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, well, they need to be with us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He starts to use just some very practical wisdom in order to obey what the Bible has called them to do. Right? Sometimes we forget that there were more people around Jesus than just 12 disciples. There was a whole group of people that followed with him. And so they're saying, well, okay, it's probably going to be one of these people who followed with us. And so they begin to kind of narrow it down. Who can actually take that? Who can meet this criteria? And they get it down to two guys. Right? The first guy, uh, he is named Joseph or Barsabbas or Justice. I don't know why he has three names. He's got three names, Okay. <laughs> The second guy only has one name. His name is Matthias. And so obeying the Bible, they use this wisdom God has given, put it into practice, narrow down these candidates, and then, well, and then they pray, don't they? Verse 24, and they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two men you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. See, they trusted the Bible. They took action to obey. They used their wisdom, and then they prayed, God, now you lead. You show us which way you'd like us to go. And you notice how they prayed there? I love the little line. It says, show which one of these two you have chosen. Right? They are praying, trusting that God in his sovereignty has already chosen someone to replace Judas, and in fact, he's been with them the entire time, right? They pray because they believe and they trust God will, in fact, lead and guide them, and he does, right? The very last verse tells us that they cast lots to figure out who will be the next, uh, who will replace Judas, right? Essentially, they're, they're flipping a coin or they're rolling a die, right? They're casting lots. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you'll know this is often done in the Old Testament. It's kind of a way of saying, all right, God, the decision is you. We trust you for the outcome, right? Proverbs 16, the die is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. It's this trust that God is in control of all things, even the most minute details like rolling a die. God, you are in control of even that. But every once in a while, when, I, when we talk about this, people will ask, so should we do that? Is, that? is that how we should be making our decisions? Is that biblical decision-making? All right, roll a die, flip a coin, that's what we're going to do. Well, what's very interesting here is this is the last time in the Bible that this ever gets used. This is the very last time in our Bibles that casting lots is used. And I think there's a reason for it that comes in the very next chapter chapter 2, what happens? Well, the Holy Spirit comes. Holy Spirit comes and indwells and empowers every single believer to follow God. In fact, the Holy Spirit indwells all of us to lead and guide and direct us. In fact, I think we don't need to cast lots because we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us to lead and guide us. But regardless, the pattern here is the same, isn't it? They're called to take action and trust God with the outcome. We're called to trust in Him to help. So how did they make this monumental decision that they had to make that would forever change the course of this church? Well, they trusted that God's Word is true. They 
took steps to obey Him, and then they trusted Him with the outcome. They relied on the sovereignty of God and took their responsibility to do what they needed to do. They didn't just sit back and say, you know what, God's in control, He'll do whatever He wants. No, actually, they said, look, we're, we're going to actually put effort into this. Let's think through how can we use our wisdom to obey God, what He has called us to do. On the other hand, they didn't say, it's all up to us now. We have to figure it out. We have to make this decision. We have to make sure everything works out exactly the way it needs to. No, they actually trusted that God would lead and guide. They trusted God was in control, and they could rest knowing that. See, I think that's what we need to learn as well. As we think about our own decisions that we have to make, I think we're called to uh, engage in that same practice, to look to the Word of God and say, well, what exactly has God called me to do? To take action, to actually obey it, and then to trust God with the outcome. See, I think oftentimes when we are faced with decisions, we have a, we have a tendency to, to fall in one of either camps. On the one side, you try and say, well, it's all up to me. I've got to think through every single possible, you know, outcome. I have to think about all the different factors. I have to make this happen. I have to do this and this and this. I have to control everything in order to make sure it works right. What we don't realize is we're trying to take the place of God, aren't we? We want to control everything. We want to say, you know what, no, no, this is all on me, instead of actually trusting that God is able to do what He says He does. On the other side, we have to be careful we don't fall into some kind of, uh, of hyper-spiritual laziness, right? As if we say, well, you know what, God is in control, so I'm just going to sit back, do whatever, He's going to make it happen, it doesn't matter. No, that's not trusting God, that's abdicating your responsibility to obey Him. If we understand both of these well, the sovereignty of God and our responsibility to action, it keeps us from either ditch. And actually what it does is it gives us confidence for the future, doesn't it? Because it's not based on what we can accomplish or what we have to do. It's, it's relying on the fact that God is in control. It's not that we ignore our responsibilities. In fact, we take them relying on God for the outcome. See, I think this is how we can actually battle against anxiety and staying up all night and stressing out about every single decision. Why? Well, it's because we're relying on God for the outcome. We're working where God has called us to work, and we're resting where God has called us to rest. Ultimately, it's because we are able to trust Him. And here's where I think we have just one final piece of the puzzle to fit in. Why is it that we can trust God? Well, it's because He loves us, and He's promised to take care of us. Luke chapter 12, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. He says, which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life, if then you are not able to do as small a thing as that? Why are you anxious about the rest? For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows you need them. Instead, seek His kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Jesus says, don't be anxious about what's not even in your power to accomplish. Look, you can't even add an hour to your life. By the way, that's a small thing for God, and it's impossible for us, so stop worrying about it. 
how much of our anxiety has been spent on things that have never been in our control, but in fact are under God's control. We are called to simply rest, rely on God, because that's where our life has always been sitting. He knows what you need. In fact, He will give it to you. Instead, focus on what you are called to do, that is to seek after His kingdom. Share the good news of Jesus because you realize ultimately it's God who changes hearts, not us. So share with confidence because the outcome is with the Lord. Obey the promises of God. Trust that He will take care of you. How do we make confident decisions? How do we avoid stressing out and anxiety over every little thing that we've done or said or need to do or haven't done or all the other things? Trust God's Word. Take steps to obey Him and trust that the sovereign God who is in control of all things will also take care of us. Place your trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and for the security of tomorrow. Would we learn to do this each and every day as we act in obedience, relying on the one who holds all things? We are called to come to God in full trust and confidence, knowing He is able to do all that we cannot. I love the image of, of you know, I'm sure you've seen it before, a young child at, at the edge of a pool about to jump in, looking at their parent and saying, are, are you going to catch me? Are you going to catch me? And ultimately, eventually, they, they jump and leap. The parent catches them, no problem. It was never in doubt. How often do we kind of shudder at the top of waiting to jump into the pool instead of just leaping, knowing God is in control of all things. In fact, He will take care of us. Let's leap into His arms. Would you pray with me? Father, Oh, Father, I thank You that You are sovereign. Lord, that, that You are in control of all things. There has never been a moment where You have lost control. Father, I thank You for the gift of Jesus. Lord, it's not one we could have asked for or even understood, and yet You loved us in such a way that You sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. Father, thank You for that gift. Lord, I pray, would you help us uh, learn to lean on you more and more. Father, that we would obey your word and trust in you for the outcome. Lord, I pray, help uh, keep anxiety even from our hearts because we trust in you for the outcome. Lord, I pray, would we honor and glorify you in how we lean and rely on you. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen.